0: Hey everybody, surprised to hear from us? This is usually an off week for Avant Bard, but we got an incredible opportunity to sit down with Casey Wilder Mott, the director of 2017's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which we discussed on last week's episode.
1: We had a fantastic time talking with him about the film and getting some answers to a couple questions that we had after watching. We really hope you enjoy this first ever bonus bard episode hello everyone this is megan Charlotte. i use she her pronouns
0: and this is matthew james marquez i use he him pronouns we are hosts of the Avant Bard podcast, and we are here today with the director of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Casey Mott.
2: Hey guys, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me as a guest on your podcast. And as you mentioned, I wrote an adaptation and directed the film adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream a couple years ago. My pronouns are he and him, and I, let's see, I mean, I was in Hollywood for about 15 years, but I was mostly working on the not-credited, not-glamorous side of the business, working at places like talent agencies and film finance firms, and about five or six years ago, started my own production company and made, ultimately, a really just a small number of films through that shingle before having something of a, a career reinvention myself and taking a job as the Executive Director of a Regional Performing Arts Center in the resort town of Sun Valley, Idaho. I've been here doing that for just about the last year. Obviously, things are a little bit choppy right now in the era of COVID-19, but if you're really interested in seeing my current work, you would have to come to Sun Valley, Idaho and come visit us at the Argerous Performing Arts Center, where we present live theater and concerts, dance recitals, you know, it's a sort of multidisciplinary performing arts center in this small and very lovely little town here in South Central Idaho.
1: Well, we really hope that you're able to make more films, especially Shakespeare adaptations, cuz we are huge fans of this.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's always flattering to hear and and not automatically be a little bit divisive. You know, you're going to have on the one hand people who are just kind of not interested in anything all things Shakespeare <laughs> on the one hand, And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, you'll have people who are kind of such purists about the texts and the traditions that they see any sort of reinterpretation, reimagining modernization as somewhat blasphemous. But, you know, I really made the film for people who love Shakespeare, love the play, love really the broader canon of Shakespeare's work. I know you guys touched upon in some of the pre-interview questions this Sort of intratextual quality that the film has, where it kind of points sideways to all of these other Shakespearean characters and famous lines and other plays, and you know that was very much a conscious choice. You know, I, I thought Midsummer is already such a fun and accessible play. You know, it's not coincidence that it's one of the first plays that's taught in high school English, and it's kind of a perennial favorite in summer stock and you know, it's accessible. And and part of that is that it's, it's, it's really a frolic, you know, it's a big romp. So knowing that, you know, this is sort of a favorite of high school English syllabuses, I thought if I could take Midsummer Night's Dream and do something that, you know, is very faithful to the play and honors the play itself, but also allows educators and people who are passionate about Shakespeare and want to kind of educate other people a little bit more, to have this whole sort of almanac of different references all in one place, you know,
0: wouldn't that be kind of a fun add-on to this film?
1: We've got a bunch of questions we want to cover, so let's dive right in.
0: You'll notice, audience, that most of these questions are very specific about the film as an adaptation. If you're interested in discussion of the film as a whole, there are some great interviews on the internet, including one at Folgers Shakespeare. We will put links to those interviews in the notes.
1: So you mentioned this a little earlier with the Easter eggs to other Shakespeare works. And in the beginning, there are just a slew just constantly coming at you when you're introducing all the characters. And I was curious, is that a group effort or did you write all of those?
2: I wrote most of them. There were a couple of actors who worked on the film, like Hamish Linklater and Finn Wintrock in particular, who, and I mean, Lily, Lily Rabe and Fran Kranz, who have very steeped in the Shakespearean tradition. And specifically in those little sort of character intro vignettes, where you meet Demetrius and you meet Lysander. I came prepared, it's in the script, and I certainly came prepared to set that day with you know, three or four lines, I think there were three or four lines in the script. And I kind of fed the actors three or four more that they could use. But I also told them, I said, look, you guys know this material, at least as well as I do. And if there are other things that you know, that you think are appropriate to use in this little scene, because these are character intros, right? we're trying to establish who these people are, who Lysander is in the context of modern day Los Angeles, who Demetrius is in that context. I said, by all means, use those. And Because those guys are so well-versed, we ended up using a lot of the stuff that they came up with, really just extemporaneously. The rest of it, yeah, was basically peppered in from the screenplay phase. You know, again, partly that was, I wanted it to have this kind of almanac, encyclopedic quality of referencing in a kind of lateral way all of these other Shakespeare works. But that was also part of this broader modernization and meta take on the material that I wanted to bring to this adaptation, which itself, you know, kind of being self-referential and structured in this meta-like way, felt like, you know, not just modern, but it also felt like something that Shakespeare would have done in this era. You know, I mean, he's kind of famously been described by many scholars as the first modernist, but I think he's probably in a lot of ways the 1st postmodernist as well. And he was very savvy about commenting upon his own work inside of the boundaries of his work. And, you know, it was really sort of it was so ahead of its time when he did it that I I don't think people even really noted it or picked up on it because he was not just one historical generation ahead of his peers in that regard, but sort of two massive revolutions ahead of his time. But again, if he were writing today, I think that he would probably be a screenwriter, first of all, because (laughs) he was popular entertainment in his day. The people that were across the street from him that he was competing with ticket buyers for was barren dog baiting, you know, <laughs> so, so he was trying to like lure people away from like vicious animal fights. right? Um, yeah, so it was like it wasn't this sort of like high culture thing that it's considered to be today. So I think he would, you know, he would have been drawn towards popular entertainment. And I think he would have been something like a mix between Aaron Sorkin and Charlie Kaufman, you know, (laughs) where he would have had like the incredible rapier skill for writing dialogue that Aaron Sorkin has, but this very self-conscious, hyper-structured Russian doll quality that Charlie Kaufman's storytelling has, such that they're interesting to look at. And I think that that was probably something that has always befuddled stage directors of Shakespeare's works. And one of the things that was really fun about liberating our story from that was getting to do that, but in a filmic context, you know, and particularly in this film. In the second act, there's about 45 minutes of this film that's just four people wandering through the woods, bumping into weird shit, basically, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and it was really fun to go and shoot that actually in the woods, in Topanga State Park, and not be confined by... I mean, I love theater, you know, I, and I love the boundaries that theater presents and sort of what that allows you to do creatively, you know, particularly because this plays so much about the woods, nature mystery, the dark, all of the things that happen in those environments, it was really, for me, satisfying to get to go and do that actually in the woods and in the dark. And I think, I hope at least that some of it comes across in the performances from the actors because, you know, we actually went out in the middle of December, you know, that's shooting in LA for you, right? You can shoot summer in the middle of winter, but even in LA in the middle of December in Topanga State Park, it gets pretty cold and it was towards the end of the shoot. It was an indie film. We had no money. So it was, you know, it was a tough shoot as all indie, low budget indie films are. And by the end of it, everyone was just like a little bit crazed. And then we had these like eight days in a row of night shoots in the middle (laughs) of the night in the middle of the woods. (laughs) It's fun for me to watch it now and think like, oh, wow. okay, I can see how Rachel was really starting to like lose her mind a little bit, you know, (laughs) but they I mean, they had great fun. We all had great fun making the film and I'm certainly proud of it. And I think they all are as well. So.
0: One of the things that we noticed in the film is when there are changes made to certain plot points. One such example was that you didn't have Theseus leave with Aegis and Demetrius, which we always notice in the actual play. They just leave Hermia and Lysander on stage alone after yelling at them. And you made the decision not to have that. And was wondering if you wanted to fix that part of the play, or was it because you wanted to introduce the availability of cell phones as a communication device, if you can get into the specifics of that decision?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really all of the above. You know, I think more than anything, those decisions were guided by a conviction that, you know, in order to take an existing work and adapt it from one medium to another, you really have to understand and, and respect the medium that you're crafting it towards. And film, it's a different medium than theater obviously, right? And it does things there are some things that it does better, there are some things it does not as well. The rhythms are very different the way that scenes are structured, the way you get in and out of scenes, the way you know how long characters talk for, I mean all that stuff. And these things have evolved over a hundred plus in the case of film and and for theater obviously thousands of years to kind of mature into specific rhythms and specific structures and having some familiarity with that and, and respecting it is one of the things that contributes to having a strong work of adaptation as opposed to something that's just a filmed play. And, and that's that's I wanted to very consciously not do that. So where a lot of the changing around, rearranging, eliminating, inventing of plot points came from more than anything else was trying to honor the filmic form with this story. Another major one was trying to understand how this story would play in a modern context, you know, and not just a modern context, but a modern sort of Hollywood context. And then some of it was also just me as a creative person myself, like wanting to take this play that I love and cherish and think very highly of, but not be afraid to sort of put some of my own fingerprints on it, you know. And when I was working on the adaptation, I came across this BAFTA podcast with John Logan. John Logan started as a playwright. a you know, Pulitzer-winning playwright before becoming, you know, one of the top screenwriters of his generation. So anyway, I was listening to this podcast, and he talks about doing an adaptation of Coriolanus with Ray Fiennes. He said the hardest thing for him to overcome was this reverence that he had for Shakespeare. You know, and he wrote three or four drafts of the screenplay adaptation of Coriolanus before he realized that he wasn't really doing anything. He wasn't adding anything that was unique that was his own, and he felt like, you know, the only way to really honor the material was to do that, you know, and that that wasn't profaning it at all. That was actually the appropriate way to sort of elevate and honor it. And that was a real breakthrough moment for me, you know. And and I felt a little bit more liberated to go about and make some modifications and alterations to the story, to the characters that were kind of more fitting with my vision of what the story could have been.
1: That's a really good point because I feel a lot of people have a hard time with modern Shakespeare because they have that reverence, but In Shakespeare's time, he wanted characters that everyone could connect to and laugh at who said modern jokes for the time and made references to things that were happening. And if you don't make changes in an adaptation, then it doesn't have that same connection to the audience.
2: Yeah, I, you know, full-throatedly agree with that. And I mean, I think you can go too far, right? Oh, absolutely.
1: So for your adaptation, you focused greatly on the cast system of Hollywood, and I really like that aspect. And you've talked about it in a lot of interviews, so I'm not going to specifically ask about that. But just with that in mind, one thing that hit me during filming was Helena's line that's very important to her character, where she says, through Athens I am thought as fair as she, about Hermia. But since she's a writer instead of an actress, and we're talking about the whole cast system of Hollywood, I feel like that line doesn't mean the same thing. But also, I've never lived in Hollywood, so I might be totally wrong, and I'd love your opinions. You know,
2: I think you're wrong and you're right, you know, and, and, and it's like so many things in this film, it's, it's you know, subject to interpretation I think that, like, the cast system, to me, is very clear. And there's kind of, like, the priestly cast, which is the artists, you know? And so it's the actors, the writers, the directors. Then there's the executive, what I think of as, like, the warrior cast, right? There's the executives who are, like, you know, they wear power suits, and they do power lunches, and they work 80-hour weeks. And then there's what I think of as, like, the worker class or the laborer class. And these are all the people who actually, like, work on these films, you know? I mean, these crews run into the hundreds or on a big film into the thousands. There's a lot about it that's very sort of blue-collar in nature. I mean, the work itself is blue-collar. I mean, it's very much about, like, moving stuff from one place to another. So, you know, these are, like, three very different kinds of lives, three very different kinds of careers. To bring it back to your question specifically about Helena and Hermia, they're both of that artist cast. There's a sheen that artists in Hollywood have, and that's whether they're actors or writers or directors, that's sort of of another world. I've said before, and I think it's true, that there's a quality that someone who's in that cast, even if they're at a very, very low vertical level of their career, you know, maybe they're they're not famous, they're not even really established, but if they're really truly of the artist world, There's a certain quality and a certain kind of esteem that their peers are going to hold them in that someone, you know, from the executive world at the top echelon, someone like a Jeffrey Katzenberg will just never have, you know, because, again, they're from a different cast. To the observation of Hermia and Helena, through Athens, I am thought as fair as she, there's a mutual recognition that a writer, a director can be every bit as, I mean, maybe not as famous, not as popularly famous as a powerful, famous movie star. But certainly inside their peer group, that's someone who's going to have every bit as much clout and esteem and recognition from their peers as someone who's kind of a, a similarly placed on the career ladder
0: actor or actress.
1: I'm so glad I was wrong. That makes so much sense when someone who has been around it explains it.
0: Yeah, I would love to pivot off that point because there was something that I noticed while watching the film, which was that all of the main fairies were people of color. Was this a conscious decision in casting? Or was it just because Oberon and Titania are musicians and they just fit the role? Or was that something that you had a conscious thought about?
2: You know, the answer is both. And, and actually, both and neither. Because there's, there's another sort of backstory to the casting here that I'm, I'm really
0: excited to get to
2: share with you guys and your listeners. Because I've never been asked this question before, and it's always shocked me. So here's the story. Originally, my intention was to cast the lovers, the four Athenians as a multiracial cast because I wanted it to look like modern day Los Angeles. That was my goal. But particularly for a film like this, you're somewhat at the mercy while well, you're very much at the mercy of the actors schedules. You know, we had something like 14 or 15 different actors who we had to you know, We had to work with their other film commitments, their personal commitments, their television commitments. So we had a period of a couple months where actors were kind of falling on and off of the project on basically a weekly basis. But at one point, we had an African-American actor attached to play Demetrius, and we had an, a Hispanic actress cast as Hermia. And I was, I was like, great, this is exactly what I want, you know. And, and Lily and Hamish came on kind of early. They were going to be Lysander and Helena. Um, they were early attachments. They came through sort of personal relationships. So I thought, this is great. Then those, you know, our shooting schedule changed and those actors had other work come up, and so it didn't work out with them. So Rachel Lee Cook and Finn Wittrock ended up coming into those parts. But it was definitely not. I mean, at that point, we were like, we were moving more in earnest towards a real production schedule. We had a start date. We had to start like filling those roles, you know, and I didn't have the luxury of saying, I really want this kind of actor for this role. It was like, I mean, Finn's an incredible actor. Rachel's a great actor. Like I was thrilled to work with them. It wasn't what I had envisioned, but I was also excited enough to work with them that I went ahead with it. Alternatively, with the fairies, there were two Caucasian kind of singer songwriter kind of freak folk types who we went to for Oberon. And, and Mia was an early attachment because Mia was a friend of mine in LA. We kind of traveled in the same social circles. She and Fran were the first two people who I sent the script to, and they both really liked it right away and jumped right on board. Me, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her work outside of this film, but she's very kind of ethereal and very earthy, you know, folk singer songwriter, really well connected in the LA indie music world. So I knew that she could bring other people into the fold for putting together an original album, which was something else that I wanted to do. But I had no designs on the fairies being uh, persons of color and the Athenians being all Caucasian, and that that being like a clear distinction between the two. I, I mean, I actually kind of wanted the opposite, but it just unfolded in that way. When we like had locked our cast and Saul came to the project through Mia. Saul and Mia were like old friends. And after we'd gone to these two other guys who weren't available and passed on it, Mia said, what do you think about Saul Williams? And I said, oh, I love that idea. I mean, Saul's amazing. You know, can you get the script to him? And she said, yeah. And she sent it to him and a day later, he wrote me back and said, I love this, I'll do it. So at that point it was kind of like a done deal, right? But I, I then, you know, I, I had to sort of like, you know, accept the fact that in terms of the racial composition, it was not going to look like what I wanted it to look like. And I mean, I was okay with that because, again, I was really overjoyed with the talent, the caliber of the actors that we got. But there was one specific thing that I was worried about and I wanted to be sensitive to. And I actually spoke to Saul and Mia about, and Avin, who's also half Asian, he's half Indian, he plays Puck. That was another thing that was like, there were three other guys that we went to who were all Caucasian before we went to Avon who, you know, weren't available, weren't interested. We weren't going to pay him enough, whatever it was. So the fact that it happened that way was just a complete accident of the circumstances of the casting. And I was really worried. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this scholar named Edward Said, who's he's yeah. Palestinian. He teaches at uh, Columbia. He's a very, very accomplished academic. He's been at Columbia for a really long time. And he wrote this book that I read in grad school called Orientalism.
1: That was actually like the focus of half of my college career.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've asked this question and you're familiar with Edward Said, like you're clearly familiar with that book, right? Mm-hmm. Where he talks about this, you know, the, the Western world's predilection towards kind of fetishizing the, what I'm going to just kind of broadly call the Eastern world. And I was really concerned about the way that we had cast the film kind of coming across either overtly or even tacitly like that. And I really didn't want that to be the case. In pre-production, I wanted to make sure to sit down with Avin and, and Mia and Saul and talk to them each about this and kind of share this concern that I had and see if they shared it with me and if there was anything we could do about it. And they were all, like, very receptive to that concern and that sensitivity. And they said, you know, we don't want you to kind of be concerned about that because, you know, you're trying to make a film. And there's, like, there's so many other things that you need to be tackling on a daily basis. I To this day, I still don't exactly feel like I've, I've made peace with it, you know, because it's it's something that, like, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable about the film. But it's hard to not be proud of the actors and not be proud of the performances that they turned in at the same time. Does that kind of help fill out some of the questions that might have been surrounding that
0: topic? That explains it perfectly, because I just tend to pick out things like that. I look for them just because I like to notice how many people of color are in a film. It wasn't something that struck me particularly like you were leaning towards anything bad. Uh, I was just very curious about it. There is a racism problem in Hollywood, and even if it was unintentional, I think that it says something that the fairies who are all presented as people who live on the outskirts or on the outside of this big culture, they are all people of color. They have found their niches. They found their place in this culture. I think that's what my reading was.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's another interpretive framework to look at it through. And, and when I was writing it, in my head, I knew very, very early on I wanted to have multiracial cast for the city dwellers, you know, for the for the Hollywood elite. And in my head, I always pictured that the fairies, frankly, as white people because the California hippie culture certainly historically is by and large a white subculture. I grew up in a little tiny town in Mendocino County, Mendocino is where in the 70s after the summer of love and the movement died, man, and all that kind of stuff happened. All these like hardcore gnarly hippies who left San Francisco and left the Bay Area, they all ended up in Point Arena in Mendocino County. That was like the milieu that I grew up. There were no people of color. I mean, very very progressive, you know? I mean, about as progressive as as you can get, but not diverse. So I sort of, I mean, I in my head, I just kind of pictured the the fairies that way and the city dwellers differently and It ended up being the reverse. There's like a little bit of a kind of a sensitivity, particularly around having a black Oberon, because that's almost like a kind of like a running joke in terms of like modern Shakespeare reinterpretations of Midsummer Night's Dream. If you look at the last, including mine, if you look at the last four or five modern adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon is always black. If it happened once or twice, you know, you can chalk it up to circumstance, and I think that that's certainly what happened with regards to our production, and hopefully, having heard the whole narrative now, you guys agree with that. But when you see it repeatedly, I think that there's something problematic about that.
1: Part of the reason that I also agree that Oberon as a black man is often fairly problematic, and that's also because Oberon is very frequently shown as a violent, angry man. And a question that we wanted to ask you anyway was, you fix two of the main male characters, in our opinions, which are Demetrius and Oberon, because with Demetrius, you fix why he suddenly doesn't like Helena by saying he found that Cupid's arrowhead. And with Oberon, you remove the jealousy of the child that Titania takes, and you also changed one of my least favorite parts which is when he wakes to tanya and goes oh yeah look you were kissing someone who's has an ass head ha, ha, you suck i'm the best and you just completely removed that and instead gave us a tender moment where he was like i actually regret this and i'm just i mean it's still kind of bad that he's just like uh well she just won't know but i'd prefer that to him shoving it in her face
2: <laughs> it's still kind of bad it's not as bad right. and like, i mean again this is like It's so satisfying as a creator to have, like, astute viewers who, like, pick up on the kinds of things that you want people to see, you know, because those were very deliberate, conscious choices to make those alterations, and they were significant choices, you know? They weren't sort of small changes from the text, and, you know, it's not just changing character or plot point or whatever. I mean, that really has thematic implications for what the play is about. Certainly many scholars who have written about the play have said, you know, it basically says that love is complicated and messy and really, really imperfect. And I agree with that, you know, and I think that there's a lot of that that survives into this adaptation. But again, as part of trying to lean into the idea of turning this into a modern Hollywood rom-com, I wanted it to be a little bit cleaner than that. And I also think it makes the characters, it makes Demetrius and it makes Oberon, you use the word tender, which I think is a great descriptor, it makes them both a little bit more tender makes it a little harder to walk out of the theater with unresolved feelings about those characters, you know? And I think attentive people who watch the play probably leave with kind of unresolved feelings about Demetrius and Oberon, and that's fine. I mean, that's clearly what Shakespeare intended, but I just sort of wanted to go in a slightly different direction. I wouldn't have done it if I, if I didn't feel confident that I could have accomplished that, you know? But I think the adaptation works vis-a-vis those two specific choices. I mean, I certainly hope it does.
1: I am pretty positive that when we were shown the arrowhead, I screamed in joy, and then I'm pretty sure when Titania was woken, I paused the movie and was just like, he fixed it. He fixed everything. He fixed all the things I hate. (laughs) Like, this is so good, guys.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, the montage scene of Oberon and Titania, where you see this kind of rapid fire montage of their relationship, and they're walking on the beach, and they're walking through the park, and they're sitting in a movie theater, and they're in this kind of abstract floating space on this structure above the ocean. That's me. I don't know. I really love the film. I love so much about it, but that might be my favorite scene. And I, and I do like the way it resolves, you know, that there's this kind of magical moment where they reappear in a different environment. Bottom's gone. Oberon doesn't need to rub it in her face. And then with regards to the arrowhead, that was, I mean, that was something that I kind of had to work on for a while and figure out. But when I kind of pieced it together, I was really pleased with it. Because, you know, another one of the sort of tricks of filmmaking is you're always looking for like visual totems, you know, you're always looking for objects, symbols, things that are visual in nature that will recur throughout the film, you know, either images or objects or whatever, and finding something finding a way to have this whole pre-Act 1, Demetrius, Helena, Hermia, Lysander pre-story that kind of makes a lot of what doesn't make sense about the play suddenly makes sense. And then to also find a way to kind of crystallize all of that into a specific object that you can see throughout the film, and ultimately this kind of revelatory flashback where you, you see that object you know, again, was for me just as someone adapting this work was really exciting and satisfying.
1: And you showed other glimpses, like Demetrius's eyes being red right before he goes to the forest and focusing on the arrowhead necklace a lot. And I was always like, hmm, I wonder why that's happening. I have so many notes that are like, why? Why that shot? And then by the end, I was like, oh, because foreshadowing and I was just not expecting such a big change to the original work.
0: (laughs) There's a phrase I like to use, which is it pays out like a slot machine where you're putting so much into it and you're like, well, okay, so it's not paying out yet. We'll just have to wait a bit. And then all of a sudden, like the moment of revelation happens and it feels so good. It's a great setup and payoff.
2: There's a phrase that I learned in film school, which is Easter eggs and breadcrumbs. And these are, no rule applies to every film, but for certain films, you want to pepper them with Easter eggs and breadcrumbs. And Easter eggs are things that are like satisfying in and of themselves. And breadcrumbs are something that are not really satisfying in and of themselves, but you know, they're leading you somewhere, you know, that you know, that they're leading you out of the woods or out of the Minotaur's labyrinth or whatever it is. And I did try to use both easter eggs and breadcrumbs in the film and there are different trails of breadcrumbs you know but the arrowhead is certainly one of the more important ones
0: yeah i want to go back to the fairies for just a little bit because during the watching of the film i came up with a phrase in my notes which was i believe my first note was i believe the fairies have what i'm going to call the power of the final cut ah, yeah And I would like to delve a little bit more into that, because I love noticing how the fairies move around through sharp cuts. Their magic is rooted in filmmaking language. Where did that come from? Was that always there?
2: So it's twofold, right? The fairies are magical, right? That's been represented and interpreted in different ways, both on stage and in film. For me, the fairies use the magic of filmmaking. You know, I mean, when Oberon, you know, magically transports him and Titania from the bower to his promontory, it's done through a cut. And that's I mean, that's a really kind of direct, straightforward example. But there are lots of instances of that throughout the play. And that was again, I, it was their way to be magical. And then the other part of it that is even more critical to the overall conceit of the film is that Puck is the ultimate, you know, and I mean, this is in the play. I think I've probably turned the dial on it up to an eleven. But, you know, Puck is, is the guy who gets that it's all a story. You know, he gets that he's a character in a story. And Shakespeare was fascinated by this concept. You know, and all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. It's not just a literary or a theatrical or even an aesthetic concept. It's if, if you really drill down on it, it's a deeply spiritual and religious idea that we're all sort of almost like automatons in some sort of pageant. And it's a sage who understands that. And what they do with that wisdom is sort of up to them. But a playful sage like Puck is going to use that wisdom and that knowledge to sort of zap in and out of different frameworks. And that was the character concept for Puck in this adaptation. And again, it's it wasn't an original idea. It's in the play itself. And then at the very end, he comes out and he has this clearly self-referential speech. And I thought that the way to sort of amplify that in a filmic way was to basically show that he's the filmmaker. He's the guy who put the whole film together and in that way he's obviously a cipher for me. And Avin and I talked about how do we bring that out and make it really rich and you know I was very fortunate in that. He was just a guy who got it like right away. I mean even before I said anything to him he was like I I get it. I totally get it. And he said this is one of the reasons I want to do this is I think that's such an interesting way to conceive of Puck as a character. So so, you know, do the fairies have final cut? I mean, certainly Puck has final cut and the fairies have kind of, if they don't have final cut, they have magical editorial powers. And when I was younger and was just kind of teaching myself how to make movies, the thing I was kind of most fascinated by was editing, because, you know, if you go too far into the wormhole, there is this almost kind of like superhuman power to like manipulate time and space. Now, obviously, like you're doing it inside the confines of an editorial bay, right? I mean, it's not actually a superhuman power, but it feels like it when you're doing it. It's this very weird kind of heady thing. And it usually happens at the tail end of like, an 18- or 20-hour cutting session, you know, (laughs) where, like, you're starting to, like, lose your sanity a little bit. But I've, I mean, I've talked to career editors about that, and they all sort of report that phenomenon of, like, this almost intoxicating sense of, like, godlike power, you know, to be able to control time and space and, and speech and body and all of these things that is a very strange sensation.
1: So our next two questions are a little less deep. My first one is... In other interviews, we've seen you talk about how people are always looking for the transformation of Bottom as something that really is important to the adaptation and the performance, and you went very far out with it. And just what was your thought process for that, besides, you know, let's shake it up, make my own mark, and have some fun?
2: There was a very, very surface level to it, and there was, you know, not to sound self-congratulatory, but there was also like a deeper level to it. And the surface level to it was what you just said. Let's shake it up. Let's be irreverent. Let's do something completely nutty and and that no one's gonna see coming and then the more thoughtful aspect of it all even though it's i feel so ridiculous saying that like i was actually thoughtful about and i'm you know spoiler alert bottom in this adaptation turns into an ass like an actual head of an ass you know and and by the way the word donkey never appears in the play no never he's he's always either called an ass or a bottom Um, so i thought i was in terms of defending (laughs) the text i was completely in the clear there. The reason he turns into a donkey is because he's turning into something bestial, you know, and he's turning into something that's kind of a totem of sexuality and nature and also something that's like ridiculous and quite easy to play for laughs on stage. And, you know, turning him into an ass accomplishes all of that same stuff. And in fact, I think you could argue it accomplishes it more than turning him into a donkey. I think it was consistent with the modern commitment of the film it's one of those moments in the play that people always wait for and they always expect to get a laugh out of it's so hard to make someone get a laugh when they're expecting to get a laugh and it's so hard to satisfy someone or shock them when they're expecting something that's outlandish or shocking and that's always a challenge that people doing adaptations of midsummer night's dream face so i thought there's no such thing as too far in this choice (laughs) you know i'm really happy that we did that it's totally silly it's very easy to make fun of. It's very easy to dislike. But it's also like, it's like, it's fun. I mean, I if nothing else, I felt like, No one else has ever done this before. You know, this play has been done thousands of times, literally throughout history. So if nothing else, like, I know it's going to be sort of its own contribution. God, contribution, what a grand word to describe something so (laughs) ridiculous. But it's going to be its own take on this moment.
0: I find it almost unable to criticize because if you say, well, it's silly, you just go, yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That that was the point. One thing I wanted to ask was, why did you choose uh, Star Wars for the lens of the Mechanicals film?
2: You know, the Pyramus and Thisbe, this is another thing like the transformation into Bottom that it's so hard to satisfy your audiences with because especially people who are familiar with the play, which tends to be a lot of Shakespeare audiences. I mean, you know, Shakespeare tends to be a kind of a committed subculture. You don't get people who are like, they went to go see the latest Fast and the Furious film and it was sold out. So they're, they're gonna go see a Shakespeare adaptation instead. You know, <laughs> I mean, you end up with like a relatively sort of committed audience for a film like this. So, you know, they know these moments, they know these beats throughout the play and they're kind of equipped with certain expectations and Pyramus and Thisbe is another one of those. I mean, I could probably say a lot of the same stuff that I just said about the butt about Pyramus and Thisbe. It was like, it was silly, it was irreverent. You know, this is a film about film You know, I thought it was totally appropriate to like find a way to shoehorn in one of maybe arguably the most beloved film franchise of all time. But then there's like, I don't think I even approached it at that kind of very high conceptual level. It really kind of started, I was looking for some kind of silly thing to do with Pyramus and Thisbe. And then I just noticed that there are all of these little artifacts throughout Pyramus and Thisbe that you can kind of reimagine inside of the context of Star Wars. So there's the sword, you can have a lightsaber, there's the lion, you have Chewbacca. You have Bottom coming back from the dead at one point, which is a force ghost, which we shot, but ultimately cut from the final version of the film for running time (laughs) considerations. Yeah, I know. I mean, a lot of people were really mad at me for leaving that one on the (laughs) cutting room floor, but we had to get it down to a certain running time. We had so little time and so little money to make the movie, and we didn't really have the time to invest in that particular aspect of the production that I would have liked. So there are just things about the execution that I think we're not getting as much mileage out of the joke and out of the conceit as we might otherwise have been able to. You know, I don't regret having made that choice. I wish that we'd had the resources to do it a little bit differently. One of the things I struggle with about a lot of adaptations of Midsummer Night's Dream is, you know, you see slightly different iterations on the same set of choices over and over. But, like, I wanted to do something that was just really crazy and different
0: yeah i think on our podcast we much rather there be a strong choice than a boring choice
1: it makes sense to be referencing something like star wars when you think about the fact that this is a film made by some students and it's not going to be something that's amazingly incredible and unlike anything. It's going to be this little home video that they threw together for this, and the only problem I had is I'm terrified of Wookiees for some reason, so I was like, oh no, why?
2: They're terrifying beasts. You should be scared of them. (laughs) thank you.
1: I know the reason. I just like saying I don't know so that I have something to hide behind. (laughs) You know, they're like, they're little
2: scrappy film school kids, right? And there's another layer to the Star Wars choice, which is and this gets very sort of esoteric, but it, it was a little bit of me poking fun at myself, right? Because I took this thing, this play that I really loved, and I did an adaptation of it. And an adaptation in a very, very kind of reductive sense, it can just be a rip off. You know, sometimes you're just kind of ripping off the source material and you're not doing anything with it. You know, this is something that was unique to the adaptation, right? And again, it came down to kind of filmic rhythm is they have to do this in a day, right? It's like, we have to make a short film in a day. And this is like, you see this at film school all the time. And there's like 24 hour film festivals all over the country. So they had very little time. Their talent was maybe of questionable merit, <laughs> And so they just like, they just immediately kind of like went to what they knew and loved, right? Which was Star Wars. That was me trying to like poke fun at myself a little bit and say like, in the same way that I sort of, I see myself as the filmmaker somewhat in the character of Puck. I also, and this was something Charity Wakefield and I talked about, I also very much kind of saw myself in that character, even more so than, than Puck. I mean, because I was, the way Quince in this film is this kind of earnest, striving young filmmaker That's what I was when I was making this film.
0: Yeah.
1: We only have a few questions left, but it's getting a bit late for us, and we don't want to keep you around too long. So let's do a little quicker, somewhat lightning round, if you want to talk more about something you can.
0: Sure. Great. One of the ones that I noticed is Bottom walking into the editing studio at the end of his first scene. Was that you or Fran? Because it it is such a tight cut away as soon as he enters that I paused. I had to rewind, watch it like twice over. And I was like, this is a beautiful comedic moment that some people might just miss.
2: So you're talking about a continuity issue. Yeah, I see what you're saying.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, I took it as comedy.
2: (laughs) Well, what's happening there is we shot that whole sequence of scenes in like three different locations. (laughs) (laughs) We had to kind of work to conceal that and make it look like a single continuous space. Yeah, we were working with the space that we had, but I'm glad that there was a joke in it for you.
1: All right, my turn. Flute and quince are women. Woo! Also, how does that change them in your mind? Or does it? I mean, it does, but like, how much?
2: I mean, yes, it, it clearly does. Even in the in, in the source material, there's this kind of very, like, loving relationship between Quince and Bottom. Yeah, know, there is. I think it, in the source <laughs> material is is largely platonic. I mean, I'm sure you could interpret it differently and play it differently, but that's the classic sort of, like, artist and his muse type relationship. They've got this very multi-dimensional relationship and there are aspects about it that are really tender. And I thought that there was not a big leap of imagination to create an actual romantic relationship on top of that. You know, I knew in the same way that I knew I wanted the Athenians to be more multiracial. I knew I wanted the mechanicals to be not all guys. And this is, I mean, this is very, very commonly done in modern, both stage and film adaptations of Midsummer Night's Dream, is the mechanicals are, are usually not all men. You know, I, I, I liked the idea specifically of Quince being a female director. And I thought that, you know, the way that Charity and Fran played that relationship. This film was made prior to the kind of the current climate, the current era in Hollywood. But I think that they almost managed to sort of presage a lot of what's going on in conversation around female directors and supporting them. And, you know, the dynamic that you see between Quince and Fran is what I've seen in friends of mine who are female directors before. They do have sort of a different approach to this sometimes. There's this really good like short documentary film that this guy Max Joseph made where he He interviewed a bunch of filmmakers about like, do you have to be an asshole to be an effective director? And one of the people he talked to was Karin Kusama, who's a very accomplished female director. And she made the point that, you know, as as a female director, you either have to do one of two things. You either have to sort of be even more of a ball buster because, you know, otherwise people are just going to kind of steamroll you or you have to be like a little bit more of a kind of consensus builder, you know, than the sort of the tyrannical patriarchal male director, cliche archetype. And I think that the way that Charity played that character, you know, is very nuanced, very caring. She managed to capture a lot of those qualities. And then flute, how did flute end up as as a female? I don't know, you know, I think honestly, I'm trying to remember back on when I was making those choices and those adaptations. I remember I wanted there to be twins for some reason, and I, I scanned those. Oh, I know why I wanted there to be twins. It was kind of like a joke on the fact that people always say that the mechanicals are kind of indistinguishable, you know, <laughs> that each one kind of bleeds into the next. So I thought, if that's the case, why don't we just, why don't I just kind of lean into that problem and make a joke out of it and find these twins? And I think I went back, you know, that was ultimately a casting thing. You know, are we going to find male twins or female twins? And, and then flute was going to be kind of cast the opposite way, because I also wanted there to be this kind of very sweet, innocent, crush-like dynamic between flute and the twins. Some of this ended up on the cutting room floor, again, because just for considerations around running time, but there's a lot of kind of nonverbal gags of the two twins vying for flute's attention, and only a few of those beats ultimately made it into the film. But yeah, so, you know, it was just it was to find a way to kind of create modern sexual dynamics,
0: modern sexual chemistry and tension
2: amongst this group of five attractive young people.
0: One of the lines that really stuck out to me of flutes that really changed when flute was a woman was, who is Thisbe a wandering knight? Because I just really get that, like, she wants to play a wandering knight. And then the answer is, no, it's just a girl that Pyramus falls in love with. It's like, yep, that's a role for women. Yeah, that,
2: I mean, that joke works. That was something that we talked about. We talked about dropping that line altogether because of the gender disconnect. But ultimately, Justine said she really wanted to keep it for the exactly the reason that you said, that it's it's sort of like it's got a very different texture with a woman delivering the line, you know, and it does have this sort of subtext of like, no, 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 you're just there for someone to have a crush on.
0: Yeah, I thought that was great. And one final question that we have for you. What would be your dream adaptation to direct like, aside from Midsummer Night's Dream? Because I directed my dream adaptation. Oh, yes, that is the dream <laughs> adaptation. And yes, what's your second
1: yeah. dream?
2: If I had the money to do it properly, I would really like to do Hamlet as a vampire western musical. I'm sorry.
1: I need to sit down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It would be kind of like a Lily... What's her name? Lily Amanpour... Not Amanpour. Lily... The The, the woman who directed a girl walks home from a bar at night and then she also directed bad batch it'd be that kind of film you know it'd be really stylish and colorful and edgy and bloody or like Spring Breakers. I mean, that's how I, I see it as this like kind of crazy, bright visual palette, but a Western and vampires because Hamlet is kind of a vampire. You know, I mean, that's always been my read on Hamlet is that the character Hamlet is like sort of what he's cursed by is the fact that he's a vampire. And then musical just because as long as you're making a vampire Western out of Hamlet, you might as go, you might as well go as <laughs> insane as you possibly can and also make it a musical at the same time. And then the other—it's—they're it, both Hamlet. The other thing I think about a lot is doing a kind of hybrid doc version of Hamlet. I think I might actually make this. I mean, if I—if I find the time and I can raise the money and do the thing all over again, um, I'd love to make almost like a film essay about Hamlet hybrid doc called who's there the first two lines the first two words of Hamlet are who's there which I think is not an accident that that's the opening line you know Hamlet is more than anything else about identity right like who am I so this doc would be sort of directed at answering that question you know and sort of structured around the seven soliloquies I mean that's another thing Hamlet's very very famous for is Shakespeare at his peak prowess as a writer wrote these seven soliloquies in Hamlet. And they're all basically like different facets of Hamlet, the character that's very different, right? I mean, that's not even really a narrative film. That's more like a film essay type thing. And you you know, it would be filmed monologues of the soliloquies, but then also just like talking head documentary interview footage of great people who have played and directed Hamlet and, and, and scholars, academics who have studied the play. Those are the two things that if I won the lottery tomorrow, I'd do the Vampire Western musical. And if life just kind of continues on its normal trajectory, then maybe sometime five to 10 years from now, I'll muster up courage to try and make another little indie film again and and maybe that'll be you know something like who's there?
1: I really want both to happen. (laughs) Can I buy you a lottery ticket and that wins?
2: (laughs) Yeah, please do.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for spending time with us and joining Avant Bard for today.
2: Great. Well anyone listening, if you've enjoyed the podcast but you haven't seen the film, then please go get it wherever fine indie films are to be found. Maybe like one fifth of one cent of the money that you spend on it will end up in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) But more importantly, uh, you'll just be another set of eyeballs that watches the film. And, you know, I'm really proud of it. All the people who worked on it are really proud of it. As you heard tonight, it excites some people and, and some others not. But hopefully it'll excite you. And thanks for listening. Thank you guys for having me on as your guest. And I'm very excited to see what happens with the podcast.
0: Thank you again. And, listeners, we will see you anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlo. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Avant Bard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at avant pod.